Welcome to Strangers from KCW and Radiotopia. I'm Leah Tao. So my little show is about the beauty and the struggle of human connection and what happens in those moments when we get closer to someone else or further removed from ourselves. And you know, often the change is slow and subtle, but sometimes it is sudden and monumental. Here is Leanna Strelkoff. It was October 4th, 2002. It was a Friday. And uh, I had spent the night at my friend Dean's house. And we had known each other already for a couple of years, but had only been dating for a few months. And our relationship was very confusing to me. Dean wasn't the kind of guy that I thought I wanted. I had this whole list, you know, I, I sat down and I made the list of sort of qualities that I admire in a person and who I want my ideal partner to be. And that person on paper was not Dean. And yet I couldn't seem to walk away. I kept being drawn back. I don't know. I didn't understand my attraction at all. Um, but here we were dating and I had spent the night with him. And I remember waking up that morning in his bedroom with the brown walls and the olive green curtains. Dean likes seeing the color of dirt. <laughs> and um, and making love with him on his bed and having what I can only describe as the best orgasm of my life. And even in the moment, <laughs> lying there thinking, holy shit, I think that actually tops them all. And then I just wanted to get up. I remember Dean wanted to lounge in bed, but we had this plan to go hiking that day. We were going to check out Charmley Park in Malibu. So I insisted that we get up. And we throw on clothes and our boots, and I don't even want to take time to have breakfast. We grab a couple of bananas, we get in the car, and we start driving up the coast. And I just felt really uncomfortable. And the whole time we're driving, I'm just trying to get Dean talking so that I don't have to talk, so that I can be in my own head going through all of these deliberations that I had had for weeks and weeks and weeks. I was constantly deliberating. Is this where I wanted to be? Is this who I want to be with? I couldn't figure out what I wanted, but I needed to know, and I needed to know immediately, and I needed to know permanently. So we get to the park, and we find the trailhead, and we start walking, and the whole time that we're hiking, I'm continuing this internal debate. And, um... We spotted an oak grove, and so we left the trail and we went into this oak grove, and I saw this impeccable tree. And I'd always climbed trees ever since I was little and had never really stopped. And I thought, there, I will feel better in the tree. Dean had his back to me, and I just started to climb. And when he turned around, I was, I don't know, 20, 25 feet up. Already, and I was standing in this tree, and I my left hand was resting on this little smaller branch, a little bit behind my body. And Dean started telling this really long joke, and I was very impatient <laughs> with this joke because really I just wanted to be thinking my own thoughts. I didn't really want to have to be engaging with him at all. And he's telling this joke, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting for the punchline of this joke, and I hear this loud crack. And I knew, I knew as soon as I heard it, what had happened. I knew that the branch my hand was resting on had broken. And I realized I'm going to go down. And that there is nothing I can do about it. 
And in that moment, I realized that I have an opportunity to surrender. <laughs> and it's something that I had been trying to do essentially my entire life up to that moment. And for the most part, failing, just not being able to let go. But it's remarkably easy to do that when it's very clear that you don't have another choice. If I had thought for a moment that I could have kept myself from hitting the ground, I would have fought. But it was so clear that there was nothing I could do. And I just said, okay, I'm going down. And I let go of everything. And all that noise in my head that I had been desperately trying to figure out or get away from just went silent. And this like euphoria came over me. And I became incredibly interested in everything around me, like the leaves and the branches, the color of the bark. I had time to look at all of that. I had time to notice how peaceful and joyful and glorious it felt. I mean, it felt to me like I was in the air for several minutes, but it's impossible. It, it couldn't have been more than a few seconds. And then the planet shot up and hit me. It's really the only way I can describe it because I had no sense that I was getting any closer to it. It was behind me. I couldn't see it. I had no sense that I was traveling. It felt like I was hanging in the air. And then all of a sudden, something slammed into me. And it was the most unforgiving, unrelenting surface. It felt to me like the ground did not give a millimeter. And it hurt like hell to hit the ground. It was instantly incredibly difficult to breathe. I couldn't take a deep breath. And the strangest thing was that I had the sensation of my legs sort of above my body, but they weren't where I perceived them to be. And by that time, Dean had dropped down next to me, and I said, where are my legs? And he was sort of like, what are you talking about? It's right here. And I saw him reach out with his hand, but I didn't, I didn't feel anything. And I reached down myself where he had reached, and I felt this incredibly smooth and silken surface that I did not recognize. And I said, what is that? And the color drained out of his face, and he said, it's your leg. And so we called 911, and I just felt incredibly calm. I could hear the sirens bouncing off the canyon walls on their way in, and I knew they were for me. And I was staring up at the leaves and the branches above me and hearing myself say, everything that you need to know about your life is happening right now, so pay attention. And then I hear a helicopter touch down just outside the grove, and they picked me up, and they loaded both Dean and I into the helicopter. And I think that's when I started to get scared. I had broken my back and crushed my spinal cord. So I had been 
instantly and completely paralyzed from the waist down. On impact. There it is. The hardest part for me was having to admit that I had no sexual sensation. My surgeon asked me to check if I had any. And I knew, I knew before he asked me that I had no sensation. But having to admit that to another person was much harder than just knowing in my own mind. And I think it represented the magnitude of what I was losing. And it was not just a little bit ironic. Here I had had literally the best orgasm of my life, what, four hours before that or something? <laughs> and then I lost all sensation. I went to a Craig Rehab Hospital in Colorado, um, a specialty hospital for spinal cord injury. And it was there that the reality of my situation began to sink in. It, it, <laughs> truly, there's nothing that brings home the reality of a spinal cord injury like being in a place where everyone has one. And you start to realize the club you've just joined. And it's hard to stay hopeful. I remember the first night at Craig, I had been assigned a nurse technician for the night shift. And contrary to their normal policy, it was going to be a man. And during the time that I was at UCLA, nothing had been done to evacuate my bowels. Well, what that meant was this nurse technician, who was a total stranger who I'd, I'd never laid eyes on in my life, who was a man, was going to spend 30 to 45 minutes using his finger to stimulate my rectum repeatedly to trigger a contraction and encourage my bowel to clear itself. And I remember just crying. But my way of dealing with that was to simply become determined that I was going to recover, that I was going to be the exception to the rule. I was not going to entertain any other possibility. And in fact, I didn't want visitors from home during that time. I didn't think that I could maintain this pristine mental and emotional perspective of a full and glorious recovery from paralysis if I had people around me who actually knew me. Because the depth of my denial was so deep. And my friends would say, you know, should we come visit? And I would say no. And my family, <laughs> I would say no. And Dean too. I didn't want him to come. I would talk to him every day, and one day I would say, yeah, maybe you can come, and then I'd talk to him the next day, and I'd say, no, I don't want you to come. And he even checked with my ex-boyfriend, who knew me much better, <laughs> and said, you know, what do I do? Do I do what she's telling me to do? And he said, just go, the ex. Just get on a plane and go. Don't listen to her. And Dean, I guess feeling insecure about that advice, checked with me about it. And I said, absolutely not. That's the worst thing you could do. Don't you dare get on a plane and just come out here. But I think that 
Um, what happened is what always happened between Dean and I, which is that his persistence eventually trumped my ambivalence. And I think eventually he probably wore me down. And I agreed to let him come. So he made plans to come for a week or something, six days maybe. And I wanted to control his visit utterly. I wanted to determine exactly when he was going to see me, you know, what environment I was in when he first saw me, what I was wearing. And so he flew in on a Monday night, and I told him he couldn't see me until 10 a.m. on Tuesday. And he honored that. And that morning, Tuesday morning, I was put together. I was clean. I had my hair done. And I was sitting up in my bed. I had my, my bed raised up so that I could sit up fully. And the clock hit 10 a.m. on the nose. And he walked in the door. And I took one look at him and I started to cry. And I didn't want him to leave my side again. That was it. I just wanted to stay with me. And in fact, that first night before he saw me, that was the only night that he spent in the housing for families of patients. Every other night after that, he spent in my hospital bed with me. And there wasn't really a plan to make love. But once he was there in my bed next to me, I was so hungry for his touch, for the smell of him, for the feel of his body against me. And the safety of that, the familiarity of it, the, the hope of it. It gave me hope for my life, that, that my life was still good, could still be good, that there could still be something really beautiful and spectacular and golden about it. And so it wasn't a question, it wasn't a debate, there wasn't any discussion about it, it just happened. The next thing I know we were kissing and we just sort of figured it out. <laughs> I think it was just affirming that we were still alive and that that mattered that you can lose really almost everything. But if you're still alive and you have each other, you still have more than you've lost. And Dean, he would watch the nurses and the techs, watch them like a hawk to see exactly what they did. How did they... For instance, turn my body in the bed. How did they wash me? How did they fix my pillow so that I was more comfortable? He would watch every move they made so that he could do those things for me. And he did them. And really, really well, too, because while he was there, we ditched the hospital for an afternoon. Um, I probably shouldn't say this in, somewhere. It can be heard. But we... Um, I was dying to go to a health food store. You know, I'd been in the hospital for months. So we snuck out of the hospital. And I hadn't learned car transfers yet. And so we just sort of figured it out between the two of us how to get me into the car. 
and he figured out how to take the wheelchair apart and stuck that in the car, and we drove like Bonnie and Clyde to Wild Oats. I mean, I could barely keep my head up. I still had absolutely zero stamina. And so I would have to like lean down and put my head down or between my legs even. But just going down the aisles and just looking at really healthy food made me feel so much better. And I got this huge glass of pressed vegetable juice. I'll never forget what that tasted like. It was incredible. And then we packed me back into the car and went back to the hospital, and nobody knew. (laughs) Yeah, he busted me out for a couple hours. It was great. My biggest fear was that Dean would stay for the wrong reasons. Out of guilt or out of some sense of obligation or responsibility. And so after I got out of the hospital and, you know, we really kind of began our relationship truly in earnest, I would push him. Every time he would talk about the future or he would say something about, you know, wanting to be together or wanting to get married or anything, I would say, you know, I might not be able to have children or, you know, a spinal cord injury takes 10 years off your life the minute it happens. Your lifespan gets shortened. Or, you know, I'm at really high risk for bladder cancer because of all the catheterizing. (laughs) I would just remind him over and over and over and over and over again. And at the same time, I was totally recovery-oriented that first year. And I would say I was fairly recovery-oriented the second year. The difference the second year was that I started writing. And what I found was that going back to my creative expression made me so much happier than going to a specialized gym for people with spinal cord injuries. And so after the second year, I decided that whatever recovery was going to happen for me, it was going to have to happen in the context of my full and satisfying life, that I was no longer willing to put off the rest of my life in the hope that I would walk again. And throughout it all, Dean and I just kept growing and thriving. And finally in uh, 2006, four years after the accident, Dean and I got married. And four years after that, I gave birth to our son, Aiden. And he's beautiful and fabulous and fun and smart and sweet. And it's the greatest thing ever. And having that with Dean, having this life with Dean, you know, we're now nearly 10 years together. And there's not a moment where I doubt that decision. God, don't tell him that. But there's not a moment where I'm not so deeply, deeply in love with this man. I was transferring onto the toilet the other day, and I was wearing socks, which is the worst, because it means my feet are sliding around. And my legs were just not cooperating at all. And one was sliding this way and one was sliding that way. And it's like Bambi who slides around on the ice. That's what it's like. And I can't help but get utterly frustrated with them. And that's such a huge departure from the relationship I had with my body before I was injured. I mean, I had danced since I was a kid. And now I can't even perceive where my legs are in space. I once put a plate on my lap 
that I'd taken out of the microwave, and I wheeled back to the bedroom with the plate on my lap. And when I took that plate off my lap, I had burned a blister onto my thigh without knowing it. It's, it's, it's horrifying, really, to be a stranger to your body in that way. It's, it's a tremendous loss. Sometimes I will watch other people dancing and just try to tune in with my own body to what it feels like to move in that way because I miss those feelings so much. When I was first injured, I would get down on myself, you know, why did you climb that tree here? Why weren't you able to make this adjustment in your life, this sort of mental, emotional, psychological adjustment without becoming paralyzed, you know? I just couldn't. And so it just leaves me ultimately grateful that I got to learn it at all. And that what I ended up with is a life that is so much better than the life I had before I was injured. And if this is what it took to get here, okay, fine, I'll take it because I love this life. <laughs> I love my work. I am adored to the ends of the earth by my husband. I have a beautiful, healthy son. What is there to regret about that? <laughs> Nothing. And yeah, it's a total bummer that this was the path, that this had to be the path to that life. <sighs> but I, I can't begrudge the path given where I'm standing. <sighs> even if I'm not standing. Thank you to Leanna Strelkoff for sharing her story. She has a website and a blog called It's Not About the Chair. Look it up. You must have fallen from the sky If you want to see pictures of Leanna and her beautiful family, join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersnomore.org. I also tweet at Leotow. And thank you again for your incredible support. It's totally freaking exciting to see such a groundswell for indie power and our bigger mission to change the way public media gets made. You know, free of the gatekeepers and the institutions that so often squash creativity. But not all institutions do that. And I am so very fortunate to have a partnership with KCRW, the coolest radio station in this country, hands down. They're awesome. And you're awesome. Maybe I say awesome too much. You can send me emails about it. Thanks to Mike Dodge Weisskopf, Kristen Carty, Louisa Beck, Eric Drachman, and to Ray Guana. Also big thanks to Hover, Domain names and email management made simple for offering a match if we get to 20,000 backers. Go to radiotopia.fm for the link. And thanks to the Knight Foundation and MailChimp for supporting Radiotopia this year. And to the funders of KCW's independent producer project, the Annenberg Foundation, the Goldhirsch Foundation, and the Roth Family Foundation. And to the Leon Lowenstein Foundation and the Lucius and Ava Eastman Fund. I'm Leah Tao. Until next time, 
help us get to 20,000 backers. And don't be strangers. Radiotopia.